are ready to go. I got two thumbs. Okay, I got two thumbs. Well, here we go. We're August the 7th, 2022. Lecture discussion number 179 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and Genesis 15. And, and today I gotta say, there's a, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, and it's not necessarily going to be coherent. Uh, but we'll just get the stuff out there. That's the way I operate, as you know. We'll be back on August the 21st. God willing, creeks don't rise. And uh, and we're still on the summer schedule. We'll be there for a little bit while longer, but uh, hopefully everything will work out pretty cleanly. We're almost done with most of our stuff. We've got roofing to do. we got windows left. I've got uh, front deck to, de- to deal with. Two things like that, but we're, uh, we're wrapping it up. It's going to snow probably, what, tomorrow in Alaska. Oh. Okay, the plan for today, and, and I know there are those who are suspicious to whether I ever have a defined plan, and I, I'm told by you, and you know who you are. You write me and tell me you don't have a plan. You're just winging it out here. And, and you guys that said, tell me that, you insist that my discordant uh, transgential method is wholly incompatible with the word plan and you don't even like me to use the word plan and you think I should be prohibited by federal judicial authoritarians under penalty of law from uttering the term plan and I understand that I really do I'm sympathetic to you Uh, and I know that they're contentious about it and contentiousness is going to contention right and protestants shall protest anyway I have been indicted by these people over the 20, gosh, how many years has it been? It's been over 30 years since I first started. But it's, we started this church in 1998. But I was uh, active way before then, obviously. But they've, uh, they've told me that every time I refer to a plan, I'm really uh, giving an imaginary non-existent plan, and it's a strategic miscorrection, uh, subterfuge, because again, plan is contradictory to discursiveness, and they know that, and so there can't be any possibility that I actually have a plan. So, the plan for today, uh, note that I'm undetoured here, I do have a plan. Is it a good plan? Does it make any sense? We'll argue that in a court of law someday, but my plan today is to continue where Lecture 178 concluded two weeks ago. And that being the questions that we got from Kathleen of Illinois, uh, who wanted to know about Judges 19, 20, 21, Bill the Cow in Kentucky, who brought up Genesis 6 again, as, as well it should be, Daniel of Anchorage, and that's opposed to, as opposed to Daniel of Dimeback, Dime Box, Texas. Got to get all this out. Uh, and that's, I have to, I'm reluctant to give people addresses. I shouldn't have done that because what happens? That's right. You, you get your house egged. What's, what's making noise over here? I don't know either. And then, uh, but, uh, he, Daniel of Anchorage is bringing in Genesis 3 again. And of course there's Gabriel uh, out there. And Gabriel has been known to reside in Antarctica. Did you know that, Dave? Yeah. That's exactly right. I, I obviously respect uh, Gabriel a great deal for this kind of defensive tactic. I mean, it's brilliant. Nobody's going to find him in Antarctica. It's going to present great difficulty for the Protestants, the Cliffside Protestants. Yeah, that's right. We are in Antarctica. We're hard to find. Nobody wants to visit us. They come in on cruise ships and they go, "What are we? What were we thinking?" Anyway, if you missed. <laughs> If you missed Lecture 178, Kathleen was perplexed at the specific as to the great wickedness that was perpetrated by the sons of Satan or the sons of Belial, which is the same thing, also known as the sons of Belial. That's Judges 19.22, Genesis 19.4, 2 Corinthians 6.15, and Psalm 18.4. Just for those of you who'd like to look all that kind of stuff up. And notice what I did right there. I proposed the connectivity of Judges 19.22 to Genesis 19.4. Mostly because of Genesis 13:13 13, 13 and Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Now, I should interject at this point, yea, a point already. There's a paralleling of Noah and Lot also to, to take into consideration. When I say Genesis 19:4, what am I talking about? That is Sodom. When I say Judges 19:22, what am I talking about? That is the sons of Belial that have done great evil things to the Hebrew woman. 
but I should I want to interject again right here the paralleling of Noah and Lot. That's Luke 17, 26 through 30. We've covered that a lot. A lot, get it? Uh, both Noah and Lot were removed immediately prior to the judgments and the destructions of both the pre-flood world and Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, Noah was taken out before the pre-flood world was destroyed. And, and uh, Lot and his wife and his daughters were taken out before, by hand before Sodom was destroyed and Gomorrah. And obviously, therefore, both Noah and Lot and Lot's wife are bonded to pre-tribulational abduction of the bride. For those of you who have a mid-tribulational position with regard to the bride or post-tribulational, that doesn't line up with what happened to Noah and Lot, or for that matter, Enoch. We just have too much evidence to the contrary. So we see this pre-tribulation abduction of the bride being presented with respect to Noah and Lot. And many commentators do not understand why 2 Peter 2.7 announces Lot to be righteous. They just don't see where there's any righteousness in Lot. They see him in the gates of Sodom and in the, in the, in the midst of wickedness, great wickedness, 13.13 of Genesis. And so they, they, they don't understand it. And Lot is described as righteous Lot oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked sons of Belial. That's how he's described. Hebrews 11, 1 through 7. Uh, and others, Hebrews 11, 1 through 7 will begin to explain, as well, Hebrews 11, 30 through 40, why Lot is righteous. He's declared to be so in the New Testament. It's extraordinary. Can't disregard that. Okay, so for today, the overwhelming evil that was ubiquitary with Noah's time and was pervasive with Lot and Abraham is repeated at Judges 19. That's where we were in Lecture 178 because of Kathleen. And how do I know that? How do I know that Judges 19 is connected to, to Noah's time and to Lot and Abraham? How did I come to that conclusion? Well, it's because the Bible refers to perversion. And if we get a word from the Bible that is perversion, for example, what do we got to do with it? We have to make it, we have to assign something to it. We have to properly define, define what perversion means when it's in the scripture. What does it mean? What is God's definition of perversion? Let's put it simply that way. I will suggest that God's definition is never man's definition. It's hardly ever. He has a much more complicated definition than we ever can imagine. Our, our definitions are singular. His are multifaceted. They're amazing. So when we say, when I say perversion, you have to ask yourself, well, what is God's definition? What does He mean when He says perversion? Notice I picked up the glass so far and have not dropped it. I have a rubber band on it to help me grab it and to identify it as mine and not Lori's. Otherwise, she will steal my stuff. It's been going on for 30-some years now. Oh, or more, my goodness. Way, I can't even begin to, my kids are 40. What the happened here? <sighs> Noah saw con- corruption in all of the earth and all flesh was corrupted. Genesis 5, 11 through 12. Let me repeat that. All flesh was corrupted. Noah, however, was not contaminated. And the Hebrew words here, as I said many, many times, that are translated blameless and righteous are actually Taman and Sadiq. S-A-D-D-I-Q. Okay? And the Hebrew means that Taman obviously connects to uncontaminated or contaminated. So when it says that, that Noah was Taman, that means that he is uncontaminated. He does not have any corruption. So all flesh was corrupted, Genesis 5, 11 and 12, except for Noah and his wife and his sons. And maybe... Two of the wives of those sons. But definitely one wife was corrupted. And how do we know that? Well, I hope I can get to that in a minute. I've done it before, so you can look me up. The contamination, the corruption is within the context of one particular part of the Bible. And that part of the Bible is Genesis 6, 1 through 2. And that is the fallen angels of Jude 6. They're corrupted. They, they corrupted the be fruitful and multiply commandment of Genesis 1, 21 through 22 and Genesis 1, 24 through 25 and Genesis 1, 28 where God announces be fruitful and multiply. That process got corrupted and it's recorded in Genesis 6, 1 through 2 and Jude 6. Something happened. 
That's his, so the context that God uses for corruption and contamination is in Genesis 6. That is where the contamination and the corruption is recorded. And Jude 6 adds information to it. And note that God's response to the corruption of Genesis 6, 1 through 2 is this. And the Lord said, my spirit will not strive with man forever. So he's responding to his definition of corruption with those words. So our definition of corruption, we need to match his. Our, our definition of contamination, we have to match his as best we can. And of course, we're finite and he is not. And the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So that, of course, is the 120-year warning. And God gives two warnings. You've got to ask the question, why does God give warnings? But he gives two. The first warning is at 120 to 20 years. Actually, not the first, but the first one that we recognize is 120 years. But the other one was Methuselah. Because Methuselah literally means, upon the death of him, destruction. So there's two warnings that the, that the, flooded, or the pre-flood world had. And why does God do that? In any event, we think we know things. But, but I do not think we know what things mean and uh, very well or very often. So when, when you apply corruption and contamination, what do those words mean? And we have to, again, we have to endeavor to persevere with respect to the correct definitions, God's definition. So he gives us three things. Perversion, corruption, contamination. All of those have meaning. Slight differences, but they all are attached to Genesis 6. And of course they're attached to uh, uh, Genesis 19 and Jude 19. <sighs> Another fantastic rabbit trail is the comma of Genesis 6-4. Specifically uh, the, the comma between old of old and men of renown. And I'll read it here in the Hebrew in a minute. I wrote it down. So I have the Hebrew as best I can, the best translation of the Hebrew that we can get, in my opinion. So there's a comma there. Specifically, again, it's between of old and men of renown. That's where it is in most translations. Uh, who were the giants of the earth, the mighty men, the Nephilim, Genesis 6.4. Then the Lord saw the wickedness, Genesis 6.5. So we've got to invest these commas, investigate these commas. So I'm going to read this to you and see if I can make some sense out of it for you. The Nephilim were on, this is Genesis 6-4. The Nephilim were on the earth in days. Now, that's the Hebrew. English, literal, word for word English Hebrew as best we can accomplish it. Those, and after that, when came in, the sons of God to the daughters of men, and they bore to them. Those were the mighty men who were old men of renown. Okay? So reading it a little bit more fluidly. The Nephilim were on the earth in days. Those and also after that when came in the sons of God to the daughters of men and they bore to them. Those were the mighty men who were the old men of renown. Okay. So who is the they? Who is the them? Who is the those in all of that? And, and what is the that after that? So we have a lot to deal with right there immediately. And if the comma that is there, and again, the comma mostly is put between of old and men of renown. That's where it's commonly put in almost every translation. If the comma is not there, if it's incorrectly put there, then the text would be read as the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Does that make any sense? Maybe not. If the comma is placed after the second men, because I have the daughters of men, and the mighty men and the old men, right? So I've got the, I have, those were the mighty men who were old men of renown. So, and I'm not making any sense, I can tell already. But if the comma is placed after the second men, then the reading becomes the mighty men who were old men. So now I know something about the mighty men. They're old men. What's the obvious question? See how the comma makes it a little bit more difficult to figure that out, in my view? It says the mighty men who were the old men of renown. No, the mighty men who were old men 
of renown. There's a big difference there. So the obvious question here is how old is old? If, if, it's, if it's saying that the mighty men were old men, that's a big deal. Most people think the old men of renown means ancient men of renown. But what if it doesn't? What if it just means they're old? I'm old, relatively speaking. The obvious question then becomes how old are they? Why, why, do, why are they called old men? What, what is going on here in, 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 uh, in that respect? And that's the critical question, as you know, of Genesis 19.4. just happens to be right there in Genesis 19.4. So I'm trying to tell you that 19.4 Genesis and 6.4 of Genesis have this special relationship. Because I have perverted, corrupted, contaminating men, old men, surrounding the house in 1904. And the word in the Hebrew is uh, for, for surround is nesabu. It means to encompass. And is only used twice in the, in the entire Hebrew Old Testament, that word. Nesabu. And so go ahead, guess. Where else is nesabu Used. Where's the other place that Nesabu was used? Where's the other place where somebody surrounded a house and that word was used? And if you shout it out, and I hope that Kathleen and, and her daughter Sherry are shouting and screaming right now, and I think they are. I think I can hear them. They're in Illinois, but you, and you can't see her jumping up and down, or both of them jumping up and down, but I, I can feel them. They're screaming over and over again the other place where Nesabu is, 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 is in, is Judges 19.23. Judges 19.23. And again, I can't see her, but I know she is yelling and shrieking and there's a bit of whooping thrown in there. They recognize, okay, wait a minute, 19.23 Judges and 19... What, 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 make sure I get it right. 19... Sometimes up here. 19.4. 19.4 Genesis, they both have the same construction and literally the same word with regard to encompass or surround. And obviously, therefore, I am submitting that the events of Judges 19 and Judges 20 and Judges 21 retrace backwards to Genesis 19 and Genesis 19 traces backwards to Genesis 6. So all of it goes back to Genesis 6. All three have the context of the outcry of the Lord God Almighty to the Lord God Almighty is fantastically great. People are, are begging God to do something that is so bad. And remember, the outcry of the blood of, of Abel speaks to the Lord. So I have a tremendous amount of violence and bloody messes in all of those 19 of Judges, 19 of Genesis, 6 of Genesis. All three of the context, again, of, the, of this outcry, the level of sin is very grave. When God says that sin is very grave, Genesis 18.20, Genesis 13.13, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. When God says that, well, now we have a fine mess, Ollie. We've got to define that accurately. I have to define corrupted corruption, perverted perversion, exceedingly wicked, very grave. Again, how how grave is it when God describes it as very grave? Those are his words. How, what is, how grave is very grave to God is my, my question. And, 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 it, and, and no, it's not any wickedness. We have a tendency in our culture today that says this particular sin is the one that is the problem with Sodom. Usually that is totally wrong. It can't be true or we'd be destroying cities all over the place. Something is extraordinarily evil here. It's not the evil that we know, but it's actions and acts that are unmatched throughout the thousands of years that have been subsequent. Recognize the targeted aspect of Genesis thirteen thirteen, the exceedingly wickedness of the old men of Sodom. So I have the old men of Sodom and I have the old men of Genesis 6, if the comma is in the wrong place. And again, when you investigate Hebrew Punctuation, it is not easy to figure out where things are, are delineated. All I'm trying to say is I got the old men in Genesis 6 and I got the old men in Sodom. 
And the sinfulness, sinfulness was directed not, it was specific, it was directed towards the Lord God of creation, before him and against him. And this is why I say the days and the times of Noah and the days and the times of Lot have yet to be seen. We haven't seen them. It's not happened yet. It's bad out there. Don't get me wrong. We have millions and millions and millions of dead children. So we have, we have, but that sinfulness does not rise so far to Luke, uh, that's Luke 17, 26 through 37 that says the days of Lot and the days of Noah will be coming. Uh, but so far that we're not there. But they're going to come. And the, the flooding of the Noadic flood was the singular. What I mean by that, it's the only remedy for that level of sin. The only way to stop that level of sin was to flood the entire world. That was the only solution. So think about that. And, and also, the, the only thing that would solve the great evil of Sodom and Gomorrah that were, that is in line with the great evil of Genesis 6. The only thing that you could do there was rain down fire and exterminate them. Those were the only solutions that, that, uh, that could, that could be accomplished or, or put into place or put, actuated, I guess. And, and, and neither of those events, the Noadic flood and the Sodom and Gomorrah, to let me repeat that, neither of those events, that evil has never risen there again. And it will not be recast. We will not see evil like that until when? Tribulation. Because Noah and Lot have that relationship about being pulled out before judgment. And the tribulation and the flood really do have very much a relationship. And I say the only solutions because they are the only solutions. So the only solution to these perversions and corruptions and contamination were the noetic flood and the total complete exorcism of Sodom and Gomorrah, because God has an infinite, complete, omniscient mind and consciousness. When I say complete, as opposed to incomplete. So he, he analyzes every possible variable, every, everything are accounted for, every aspect of it. And so he comes up with the one solution in both cases. Because he can come up with the one solution. We cannot. And I said last lecture that Kathleen built a cow, Daniel from, not, not from Dimebach, Texas, because again, I don't want to cause problems where there aren't any. Or, okay, I do. But that's another story. And Gabriel from the Antarctic, all were presenting the same question. I said all four of those people have the same question, and they do. And hopefully, uh, I know that people have already fallen fast asleep all over the, all over the internet. From the vast uh, Clipsidian. Did we decide if it's Clipsidian or Clipsidian? I think you say Clipsidian if you're in England and Clipsidian if you're in the United States. I think it's not. No, no, it could be the reverse because they say vitamin over there. We say vitamin. So, so, I, I would go with Clipsidian because I, I think the English accent makes, makes me sound more intelligent. If only I had one, huh? Okay. I hope the audience is beginning to see and diagnose the similarities here between these questions. And if you don't, that's okay, because I continue to persevere. Perhaps it would be prudent to resurrect the four questions for the sake of the visitor that came today. Somewhere in the vast Internet audience, I have a visitor. So for his sake or her sake, we're going to revisit these questions in case you missed Kathleen 178 lecture. Kathleen wanted to know the specifics of the evil that causes Israel to kill almost every single Benjamite. Almost completely wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. They were hidden in the rocks. In the cleft, if you want. Thank Moses, thank Ezekiel. Gabriel requested more information. I guess it's cold down there in Antarctica. He wanted more information as to it relates to the incredible mystery of Goliath. Because he recognizes there's something really special about Goliath, and I absolutely agree with that. He wants to know about this burial of the skull of Goliath. Gal Goliath, uh, we call that uh, Gal Golgotha, which is incorrect. It's Gal Goliath is that place. It is a reference to the skull of Goliath, as I've said many, many times. Essentially, we had to deal with Goliath and his four brothers. 
because I have this after that. Remember I said, what's going on with the after that? Let me read it again. Those and and also after that, when came in the sons of God to the daughters of men. So the Nephilim were on the earth in those in, I'm sorry, the Nephilim were on the earth in days. Those and also after that. So they were on the earth after that. And I asked, what is the that after that? So he says there were Nephilim in the days. And then after that, there were Nephilim. That's what it's saying. So what is the after that? After that, and essentially that's the Goliath mystery that and his four brothers, and that's Genesis six four, or the those, or the or both. It's it's not only the after that, but it's also the those. Bill the cow, who is not actually a cow. I did have a wonderful letter, and I'll I'll read those next week. Wanting to know if Bill was actually a cow. I see no evidence at this point to demonstrate that he's really a cow. Uh, Crazy Becky might intervene with a counter-argument, so I have to anticipate that. But but he was Bill the cow was doing his usual ruminations as he does uh, brilliantly, I should say, and he began to wonder if Satan was the architect of the Genesis six four event, which means Satan is causing that. We have a tendency to remove Satan out of it, but why would we? Whose mind is has is filled to the brim with with wickedness, Ezekiel twenty eight, and wisdom and capability, intelligence. He began and again Bill began to wonder, no, wait a minute, Satan might be the architect of the Genesis six four event, and if the Nephilim, which is the those, the old men of renown, see how I put that comma in a different place? They're the old men. Or if there's no comma, they're the old men. If those old men were Satan's architectonics, um, then that led Bill to, uh, the cow to uh, additional. Uh, uh, he, he began to his cognitive capabilities kicked in, and he began to process what would be the case here. Then, what would be Satan's original intent if that were the if his premise was correct? Essentially, to reword it, what was Satan attempting to destroy with this perversion, corruption, and contamination that we have yet to actually identify and define? And, and, and let me say again, take aside every instinct that you have with regard to perversion, corruption, and contamination and reassess it. Those words are very important to know as much as we can exactly. Bill then asked, if Satan... Who's Ezekiel 28:16 lie, and his Genesis 3:4 lie, which is superdeterminism, as we've co- covered many, many times. Uh, essentially, free will is an illusion. That's his lie. That's the lie of Satan. Superdeterministic uh, uh, philosophy that's in that is inculcated uh, in the physics community at this time. Free will is an illusion, ultimately, is uh, how it boils down. Was Satan likely or logically continuing to attack God on the same basis that he did in Job? Job, Good grief. In Job 1 and Job 2. And in Genesis 3-4. His whole purpose with the, with the woman was to convince her that if she ate from that tree that she would get wisdom because she would find out whether or not it was true with respect to her will. Did she have will? Was she an automaton, a robot? Or was she actually a living being? Was God lying about her living, being a living being? That's Genesis 3-4. Job 1 and Job 2, uh, Satan is saying, listen, if you take your, this protective hedge that you've put around Job, protecting his, pretending to protect him as a living being, because if his free will is exposed, if he actually has free will, he will curse you to his face. That's going on in Job 1 and Job 2. So Genesis 3 and Job 1 and Job 2 are the same thing being repeated. What Bill is asking, Bill the cow is saying, is Genesis 6 the same as Job 1, Job 2, and Genesis 3, 4? Is, is Satan attacking free will here? Were the sons of Belial, the Nephilim, the sons of Satan... Were they somehow created and stripped of their free will to believe God? That was his position. So I think it's a fascinating question. 
Notice how I brought in Genesis 15.6. In other words, I, can, I got a marker. I, I should mark. I erased it because I was feeling confident. Was Satan merely attempting to totally and completely contaminate and pervert and corrupt the genetics of humanity by adding in the genetics of fallen angels? And what would be the process, the biological process of that? Is that what the Bible says in Genesis 6, 4? That somehow the sons of God, the angels, were able to gather the willing daughters of men and produce the old men that ultimately were the Nephilim. And and if Satan was trying to contaminate and pervert and corrupt the genetics of humanity and his sole purpose was to eliminate the seed of the woman, because that's the common view, as you know. I hope you know that. Maybe you don't. But the common view here is that if you have the sons of God or angels, which is the only position I think that's defensible, because of the sons of God actually means angels everywhere in the Bible, Old Testament specifically. If you have that view, that's the cosmological view, it's the only one that is literal in my view. I do understand Henry Morris's uh, view on, on demon possession, but I don't think demon possession will affect the, the genetics. And they clearly affected the genetics. The Nephilim is, is obviously something different. It's a different being than anything God created by day six, 131 Genesis. Do you really think that when he said everything is very good, be, be fruitful and multiply, that the Nephilim were involved in that? That can't be so. So who, who, how did the Nephilim come into being? Well, the sons of God, the angels, uh, the fallen angels, Jude 6, are clearly involved in this. And, and of course, Bill's position, again, repeated, is they're, they're involved. But it's Satan's intellect that is governing it. And is Satan attacking the free will component that he does so with respect to Job and Eve? And, and, and it can't be that he's only trying to eliminate the seed of the woman, which is Genesis 3.15. Right? Genesis 6 is posted. Let's do the math. That's why I get the big money. Genesis 3, Genesis 6. Genesis 6 is chronologically beyond Genesis 3. So, did Satan look at Genesis 3.15 and say, okay, I've got to corrupt all of humanity. I've got to contaminate them. I have to pervert them in order to stop the seed of the woman from killing the seed of the serpent. I have to do that. Now, that's obviously involved in there, but again, don't limit yourself to one or two answers because there's never one or two answers. It's, it's this spread of information that comes out. The answers are, are tremendously complex. <coughs> Excuse me. So that you have... <coughs> That's one. That's certainly part of his plan. I won't. I won't argue that it is, and it likely has, has a, a strong position. But is that it? <clears throat> In Bill's uh, hypothesis, did Satan's plan include the possibility of constructing a being that had no capacity to believe God at all? Because if, if a being had no capacity to believe God, that causes a great lots of problems, doesn't it? A being whose every intent... Is, are, are there theologians today that say that there's some people that can never believe God, never be saved? Do they say that today? They do. Is that, is that true? Do we have that position? That's one of the implications. If you, if, you, if you have the position that says that there are human beings, living beings, who can never be saved, they are predestined, they are condemned to, to uh, torment and... and the lake of fire before time. That view is very common. If you have that view, then you have to accept it's a possibility that Satan could create a being like that and that that being might be the Nephilim. You have to at least entertain it. One of the implications of your position. So had Satan had this aspect of trying to find a being that had no capacity to choose or believe God at all, a being whose every intent of his thoughts was only evil continually. That's Genesis 6.5. God looks at the entire human structure and says every thought was only evil continually. Genesis 6.5. So we have that condition. 
And the only solution to it was a worldwide flood. And all flesh was contaminated. That means the animals were contaminated. Their flesh. And note that Genesis 6.5, again, this is why I get the big money. So Genesis 6.5 is immediately uh, subsequent. It follows Genesis 6.4. Wow. So I got Genesis 4, I got Genesis 6.5. What are the chances that that is a coincidence? And again, infinity precludes coincidence. Anyway, I am not responsible for Bill the Cow's question, though I delighted when he gave it to me. I said, oh, that's a great question. That's going to cause all kinds of consternation. I, I can twist this around and beat all kinds of things up with it. It's fantastic. What a, what a cudgel. Bill, though, was wise to ask, is it possible, this is what he's saying, to remove free will? That's ultimately his question boiled down. Has it ever occurred? Did Satan start out saying, what if I'm able to remove? Did he concede that free will was possible? He must have had that had that because Genesis 3 demonstrates that. The trial of Eve and Adam and Satan demonstrates that free will exists. They testified against Satan and he knew it. So what if he wanted to remove all witnesses by making it impossible to testify against him? Would, would he have thought of that? If Bill thought of it, Bill, you know, he's, he's a little weird. How much more likely is it that, that Satan would have thought of it? Ultimately, Bill is trying to wrestle with all that. Anyway, was this the plan to cause God to kill the bodies of beings who could only reside in the lake of fire? They had no other possibility. So would Satan have said, I'm going to make it so no one who is ever born believes God? I'll just completely, totally pervert, contaminate, and corrupt every human being with respect to the free will issue. Did he do it? Again, his lie is all about free will. So is that involved? Just asking for a friend. Anyway, I got Daniel from Anchorage. I have to repeat, not from Dimebox, Texas. So you can look up all the Daniels in Anchorage and, and start throwing things at their houses. Daniel would probably think that would improve the look of his house, but that's another story. But I got Daniel, he joins in with Eve rejecting Satan's lie and believing God. If that were to be the case, if Eve had rejected Satan and believed God, would that have changed the unchangeable, the immutable, the unchangeability that is described of God in Malachi 3 6? So that's what he wanted to know. Yay, Daniel from Anchorage. Daniel from Anchorage is in the arena of free will also of Eve, but this time it's the free will of Eve colliding with Genesis, I'm sorry, with Revelation 13.8. So he's saying, I, what if she did not fall for this and rejected it? How would that affect Genesis, uh, Revelation 13.8? That is the lamb slain before God installed time. So he has, he has the lamb slain before the foundation, before time is instituted, and I, he, we, but yet I have Eve that has free will. What if her free will rejected Satan, believed God, what would have happened to the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth? 13.8 Revelation. This is basically, and, and again, basically is a word that it is wholly inadequate uh, when discussing this, but it's all God. But th- this is basically a comparing of a person who is inside of time interacting with the person who is outside of time. That's what Daniel wants to talk about. We're back at uh, uh, general relativity now, Minkowski and Einstein. Everybody loves that. Okay, nobody loves that. This is Revelation 1.8, the Aleph Ta, which we've covered recently that's the infinite one. Jesus Christ, the only human being in the history of all recorded uh, documents ever describe himself as outside of time and infinite. But that's what he says. You should know that. If you're out there listening to me and you've never heard any uh, Christian uh, preaching at all about Christ, he is the only one that says, I am outside of time and I am infinite. No other human being has ever said that. No one had ever even conceived the possibility of saying it. But he did. So, 
How can one, how does one understand the implications of infinity and timelessness merging with a woman, a finite being that is subject to time and and her free will? And keep in mind that both God and Eve have the same free will. They both have free will. Where does free will come from is the question. I say all the time, life comes from life, consciousness comes from consciousness. Existence comes from existence. Infinity has to come from infinity. What about free will? Good answer. Do they hear you whenever you guys talk? On the, do they hear? According to Lori, they can hear you good? Okay. Terry got a cookie for all of those in the audience that want to know. You came up last, was it last lecture and you had to clean up the glass that I threw all over the floor and people saw you. Yes, they did. So, yes, the authorities are coming. Where was I? I don't remember. How do I understand an infinite timeless being interacting with a finite uh, inside of time being that has free will? How do I I got to work that through. That's what Daniel from Anchorage wants us to do. And he's trying to do it as well. Einstein, just for an example, got this comprehensively wrong. He was a complete total failure with regard to this, as does the majority, the vast majority of physicists. So lower your expectations. What do the vast majority of physicists think? They say there's no, there's no free will. The only solution to this is there's no free will. It's an illusion. That, again, is the exact lie that Satan has perpetrated on them, and they have fallen for it. Anyway, where was I? How can I know? I mean, how can I really know anything? Remember, that's Kurt Goodell. What did he decide for me? Goodell. Goodell declares me to be incomplete. I am restricted. I'm therefore, I, I, the only thing I've got is incompleteness. So how do I understand something that is complete? With an incomplete mind, incomplete capability. So, once again, Kurt Goodell, Goodell, I keep saying his name wrong, but Goodell figured something out that is so profoundly interesting. Okay, more things to consider. How's my time? Doing good. Think of what coming next is going to be. You ever see movies with a blunderbuss in it or a scatter gun? Well, that's the approach we're having now. How much time do I have? Oh my gosh, I got 20 minutes? I got time to sing and dance? Play the banjo? That will increase the market size, won't it? Well, I'm doing great. By great, the great is a relative term, though, isn't it? I mean, my, my great and your great, ooh, it is a, they're separated. Okay, so what, what I'm doing is something I like to call the implications of your theological positions. Or what's called the if-then. And I used to call it if-then because I taught, I taught a lot of geometry and Bible at the same time. So if-then worked out for me. For example, if you advocate that it is possible for Satan to manipulate the genetic code to the point that free will is eliminated, then you are conceding that free will is what? manipulatable, and therefore it is temporal. Because if I can manipulate it, if I can remove it, then it's temporary, is it not? And if will is temporary, then it becomes the same as the fallen physical realm that we have now, which is also temporary. The physical, this fallen condition is a physical condition. Creation is physical and it is, uh, it, is, it is temporary. Death is, has no impact. Remember those lectures? Okay. And if will is temporary, then will, which is a function of consciousness, as you know, has been assigned or has consciousness. It is tied to consciousness. Will came from consciousness. And if will is temporary, and is therefore you equivalent to physicality, which is temporary, then what have you done to consciousness? Because you've made consciousness, you've made that transitory as well. You put, you put consciousness in the finite column now. 
And that's a theological disaster, I hate to say. Well, I don't hate to say. I'm actually kind of delighted to say it. Uh, absolutely. I've got Genesis 2.7. I've got Ecclesiastes 12.7. I've got Genesis 120, 121.21, 124.128.130.617.619.722.817.912.915.916. And I'm just getting started. It says that consciousness is not temporary. That it is eternal. That it is immortal. Our personhood cannot be ended, nor can the animals and the angels' personhoods be ended. Every one of those verses say there's no possibility that you can make consciousness uh, limited or temporary. You can't do it. And if will is a construction of consciousness, then you cannot affect will either. Because if you do, you have affected consciousness. That's the point that I tried to make. The immortality of the breath of life is an established fact. The breath of the spirit of life is the living soul. And therefore, the question becomes, can that which is non-physical become physical? Because that's what you're trying to do. Can that which is eternal be made unstable? And obviously, consciousness is not made. He didn't make consciousness. The physicalists, or the physicalists, I'm sorry, they believe that uh, consciousness emerges from a physical brain. But consciousness is not physical, as you know, but that's called emergentism. But consciousness is not made. It doesn't emerge. The physical is made. The spiritual, the living soul, the breath of the spirit of life is, is, we're absolutely told that it is given. What is, it is unmade and it is given. And that becomes the question is how does God give his breath, breath of life? Now, we have all kinds of positions on this. We have the Mormon position, which is very similar to the Catholic position. Uh, we have all kinds of things here. We have Traducianism, uh, which you'll find uh, probably best defended by Charles Ryrie. So, how does God give his breath of life? And if you propose that God permitted Satan, let me say it again, if you propose that God permitted Satan to attempt this experiment, and I should add here that we have uh, Joseph Mengele and Adolf Hitler, right? They right there. And we've had uh, vivisection of animals where they have chased around the body trying to find the consciousness. Like That's what they did to those animals. That was their purpose, was to, say, to try to predict where the consciousness resided. You have all of this explanation. I used to say the pineal or the pineal gland and, and uh, dimethyltryptamine and all of these things to, to, to debate here. But we won't do it today because I'm down to about 18 minutes. But Mengele and Hitler, they had similar ambitions. And so this is not beyond the realm of possibility in any event. There is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9. Nobody's thought of anything new. It's always been thought before. And I would offer that Mengele, as perverted as he was, did not come close to the threshold that is Genesis 6, Judges 19, and Genesis 19. Anyway, to repeat, is it possible to remove free will or in any way diminish it? Is it possible? You have to ask you that. And if a living being has no will and therefore is limited to the word cannot, if you have a living being that cannot as opposed to will not, he cannot, is that still a living being? And if God were to condemn a living being that cannot know good from evil, cannot know it because it has been determined that his free will has, or her free will, their free will has been removed and they cannot know now good from evil. Cannot. That's the two trees. If God were to condemn such a being, well, what does that say of Psalm 36, 5 through 7? What is 36 Psalms 5 through 7 about? It is about all kinds of wonderful, interesting things. Let's just back up a second. We've got Psalm 36, 1 through 4. What is that about? That is about uh, the, this exact evil. That is the wicked freely choosing evil. Psalm, Psalm 36 presents that exact issue. God is just. He's fair. He's righteous. His judgment is deep. And the, but the wicked set themselves on a path in, in a way that is not good. Psalm 36, 4. They do not abhor evil. They actually embrace it. And the Hebrew word translated set uh, connotes taking a stand. 
So they stand with evil. They have decided, I will stand with evil. That means that they have a choice to choose evil. In the context of Psalm 36.4, it would be choosing to stand with evil. Okay, quickly moving along here. If you define, and when I say moving along, that's turtles and snails and epoxy, right? I'm not, I'm not flying very fast. That's counting paint drying. And I like to say, never hatch your chickens before they count. Now you'll say, ooh, that doesn't make any sense. But it really does. It's like, uh, never sit at your table while you're counting it. I'm sorry, yeah, never, never sit at, sit your money while you're counting at the table. Same thing. You're gonna think, that doesn't make sense, but you'd be wrong. I can make sense out of both of them. Anyway, enough of that. Could Eve in any way terminate, delay, obstruct the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth? If you consider Eve's free will has this power, then Eve is what? She's omnipotent. Because if she can stop omnipotence, then she is herself omnipotent. So you're saying that a woman's free will, and I will agree that a woman's free will is very powerful, you don't want to mess. You don't want to get away with that. You stomped into a mud hole. But, I, but uh, if if you consider Eve's free will has the power, then Eve is omnipotent, and that's row ru- ru- oops. You're in trouble now. If Eve is able, equipped to cause God to postpone His plan of salvation, then who else is able to do that? Almost everybody, right? Everybody with free will can do it. Yeah, that's right. So we have another problem. That's the if then, right? How many is many in this case? And if you argue that Satan seems to think that he can outmaneuver God, cause Christ to adjust, to adapt, then why does Satan think this is possible? If he thinks he can do it, why does he think he can do it? In Psalm 10.6, 10.11, 10.13, present the thought process of someone who believes that a stalemate is achievable. It actually is there. You can see it, read it, what what Satan is thinking. Why does he think like that? What's made him think like that? He's not stupid. We're stupid. He's not. Also, Matthew 27, 5, I have Judas and Satan, that combination, right? The seed of the serpent and, and the serpent himself combined. They're seeing the impending crucifixion sacrifice of Christ and they throw the silver to the temple pile. Potter, Zechariah 11.13. Why did they do that? What can we conclude? What are they thinking? Did they think they could stop the crucifixion? Did they try to stop the crucifixion? If they tried to stop the crucifixion, why did they do it? Why did they think they could? And as you know, uh, ah, it's infinite, so I don't have to put a mark. Satan attacks Job, Job 1.9, Job 2.4, Genesis 18.22-33, Abraham stood still, stood before the Lord. I got all these places, Job 1.9, Job 2.4, seems to imply the same reason for throwing the temple potter money. Uh, Zechariah 11.13, I have this again repeated right there. Matthew 26.39, why did Satan attack Job? Did he think he could win? Or was he just putting on a show for those? Did he think, no, there's no possibility I can win, but I'm just going to put a show for the other, for the angelic realm? What was his point? It's more complex than you think. All of these things have been raised, those that I brought up, Job 9, or 1 9, Job 2 4, Genesis 18 22. That's where Abraham stood still before the Lord. Everybody left, but he stood there and argued, right? If there's, if there's 10 people, or there's 20 people, or there's 50 people. Okay, so he seems to think that he can do something. Why is he doing that? All, and all of those and others have been uh, raised to assert that God, Malachi 3.6, can be convinced by men or angels and or animals to change his mind. You'll see God portrayed all the time by the atheists. They'll say that he's, like I said before, he's a cosmic sadist. I mean, he's he's evil. That's what they think. That's how they think. Why, why won't he do something? Why won't he change his mind? If this is his plan, it's a bad plan. Why won't he change it? It can't be a bad plan. It can't be. And again, uh, Matthew 26, 39, Genesis 18, 33. They're directly explained. Of course, as you know, wait for it. They're directly explained. as Absolutely. You can figure out everything you need to figure out because they're in Genesis 15, 17. That's the smoking furnace. 
and the flaming light. So you can explain those right there. And to rephrase uh, the Daniel from Anchorage question, can the free will of a human or angel, or let's throw the animals in there if you will, you go ahead, it won't hurt you. Can they forestall the lamb slain, the redemptive plan, the redemptive work of Christ? Is that possible? Now, note that Matthew 16, 22 through 23, Mark 8, 31 through 33, specifically the Lord God Almighty does say this. He references Satan. Why does he reference Satan there? You know what that is. That is the get behind me Satan. That's where Peter says, you know what? You're not going to be crucified. It's not going to happen. And Jesus Christ doesn't say, you know, Peter, you're wrong. He says, get behind me Satan. What's the obvious question? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. That's what he says. Is he talking to Peter? Did he say Peter's name? Does he know he didn't say Peter's name? Oh, well, he's God. Why didn't he say, get behind me, Peter? He doesn't do that. He says, get behind me, Satan. Why does he say it? First easy question. Was Satan there? Was he in the area? Would Christ know that Satan was in the area? Would he know that Satan could hear him wherever he was? Did Satan hear God say this? Uh, I think the answers are all yes there. Peter had announced that Jesus was the Messiah, Mark 18, 29 through 30, and the response from Jesus God to Peter was, Tell no one. Don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. You're right. Don't tell anybody. Same thing he did with Nicodemus. You're right. Nobody needs to know. Why didn't Christ want people to know? And then he reveals his impending crucifixion and the sign of Jonah resurrection. And Peter could not conceive of the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. That's not good news to Peter. And protests. The Bible says he rebukes God. Is that a good plan? Rebuke God? No, not a good plan. And and God in the flesh says this is satanic. And so we know things now. We learn things. Satan does not comprehend the solution to sin and death. That is Genesis 15, as we know, infinity. The the things of God are a mystery to Satan. Satan is limited to the things of men. And chew on that a while while I keep going. What are the things of mankind? I suggest that we replace the things of mankind, and we reword it this way, the thoughts, the thoughts of the plans of God and the thoughts and the plans of men. Satan cannot understand the thoughts and the plans of God. Can't get it. He's not. He is what? What would Kurt Gudel say about Satan? He's incomplete. No possibility he can get, he can know the thoughts of God. God's thoughts are not man's thoughts, not the same, Isaiah 55, 8. Which brings us back to the buried skull of Goliath. And of course you see why. Okay? I said in lecture 178 that Christ elevates Goliath, because he does. He elevates him. Why? Of all the blasphemers in Scripture, it is Goliath who is underneath the crucifixion cross of God. That's Goliath there. Why is it Goliath? Why Goliath? Why does Christ attach himself to Goliath at his crucifixion? And yes, there's the Genesis 3.15 prophecy and there's the tree of life and there's the tree of, uh, of certain death and we've, we know, know all of that's there. But that's not very much information, is it? When I say information, if you say the, the reason that he put Goliath there is because of the Genesis 3.15 prophecy, well, Goliath is not the seed of the serpent. You make the case Judas is the seed of the serpent as I've done for a hundred years. Okay, maybe less thousand times. But it's Goliath who is chosen to represent the seed of the serpent at the crucifixion. Side note, was Goliath conscious when he was beheaded by David? He's not dead. David cuts his head off. Why does David cut the head off? Does he know ahead of time that he's going to put that that head at at where Christ is going to be crucified? Is there a possibility that, that David had worked that out? No. That's the thoughts of God, not the thoughts of men. Why not Nimrod is the question. He's the hunter of men. He's the king of Babylon. You know, we have to confuse the language to stop Nimrod. Why isn't he the one buried underneath the cross? 
It's gold. And, and I get the shepherd king aspect completely. Nimrod, it would seem, would have been an equal to Goliath's typology with respect to the Antichrist. Some would think it's more so. Was, was Goliath a son of Belial? What about Herod and Antipas? He beheaded John the Baptist. What about Jezebel? Any votes for Jezebel? No, none of those made it. Huh? Herod the Great, the murderer of babies, Antiochus Epiphanes. He slew a pig on the temple, on the, on the, uh, on the temple altar. And none of those were chosen. The only one that could possibly be there is Goliath. Why? Again, God is, Christ is omniscient, infinite, and he takes account, he's complete, he, could, he takes into account all variabilities and the one and all possibilities and the one that is, has to be there, who, whose skull must be under the crucifixion, has got to be Goliath. Why is that? And, and Satan had no idea because he can't think like God. I submit that only Goliath of my list that I gave you, especially the whole list, of all of you, of every being that has ever lived, only Goliath is the one. And why is he the one? Well, a bunch of reasons. How many reasons do you think there are? Lots of reasons. Not just one. I think I'm going to say, what's the number one reason? How many reasons does Christ have? Oh my gosh, we can never even begin to imagine. But what's, what do I think is the top reason? And many people will think, okay, this is the tree. Of, we all argue that we have the tree of life, certain life. We also have the tree of certain death. Now, which one is it? Where did he put the cross? He could have chosen either one. You can make the case for the tree of life because it's a tree. He's hanging from a tree. Cursed is him hanging from a tree. However, also could refer to the tree of death. So did he pick the tree of life or the tree of death? Work it out. You had a homework assignment. Did anybody out there do your homework assignment? Nobody did. Nobody ever did any homework assignments for me all my teaching career. I tried, tried, tried. Test on Friday. What's the number one reason? I think it refers back to Genesis 6, Judges 19, Genesis 19. We're right back where we were, where we started. How does he do it? Anyway, if I am correct, then Christ on his cross at his crucifixion chose the skull of a Nephilimic. That's what he wanted underneath him. He wanted a Nephilim underneath him. The skull of a Nephilim. A contaminated, a corrupted flesh. He wanted that person to portray the Antichrist. And who could possibly understand this? Who realized that God, what God was thinking? There's lots of people. Do you think the entire angelic realm watched the crucifixion? Absolutely they did. Who figured out that, hey, he put his cross on top of the skull of Goliath? Who knew that? Did they know that's where, God, where, where Goliath's skull was buried? Did they see it happen? They absolutely had to see it happen. Did they remember it? They're finite beings. Why would Christ, who is mindful of the thoughts of God here? Why would Christ do this? Obviously, Genesis 6 is inordinately important to God who grieves and weeps and mourns for the wicked. The lost, Genesis 6, 6. He's sorry. He's, he's grieving tremendously that he floods the earth. That's the only solution. And John 11:35, John 11:38. So important, this this vestige of Genesis 6-4, so important is that that it's attached to his crucifixion. To say it a little bit more plainly, if I can, Goliath was the only one of the wicked types of the Antichrist who was Nephilim. And he was chosen because he was Nephilim. Christ wanted everybody to see what happens. See, we always think the crucifixion is for humanity, it's for the Jews, it's for whatever... We always leave out that angelic and those, and those animals. We leave it all out. The angels, if they knew that was the skull of Goliath, they're doing what? They're talking about Genesis 6, Jude 6. Okay, final thought, thoughts. Everyone cheers.
Matthew 24, 15 through 22. Jesus, God's words to his disciples. He's answering the three questions. You remember the three questions. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your return? What will be the sign of the end of the age? And then, so that's the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That's the return of Christ for Israel. And that's the, uh, the, what is the sign of the end of the age of the Gentiles and the, is, is imminent and the kingdom of Christ is also right on the threshold and about to happen. What's that? And Matthew 24, 15-22 is Jesus' description of the tribulation. The tribulation is a sign to Israel. And Christ says this to Israel at 24, 19. He says this, Woe! Now this is God. When God says woe, woe! That's a bad thing. Ask the Pharisees. Woe to those who are pregnant. Now who are those that are pregnant? Who's he talking to? He's talking to Jews. Woe to pregnant Jewish women, he said. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in the tribulation. And you don't want to be doing this. You don't want to be fleeing in the winter. That's what he says. Why does he say that? Why is it so bad to be a pregnant Jewish woman running for her life while she's nursing a baby? Why is that a problem? Why not ride a horse? Why not get in a cart? Who knows what kind of transportation capabilities we're going to have in the tribulation, but let's assume we have them equal to today. Why would anybody be on foot that's pregnant or nursing a baby? Running. He doesn't say woe to women. He says woe to pregnant women. You think it's because they're slow? Well, you know, my... Four-wheel drive Suburban 2005 is as fast as yours. I mean, if I'm fleeing for my life, I've got that accelerator down. So why does he say, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies at the time that they're fleeing in the tribulation? Where does that connect? Because it's got to connect because the Bible is absolutely interconnected. That's going to connect to some place in the Old Testament, Kathleen. Where is it going to be? Now, I get a lot of criticism for this position, but I got a, I even got a note, I think, last week. What's this idiot talking about here? What is he? I made some comment that referred to Matthew, uh, and I got a, a little comment. I think and it's absolutely appropriate. I'm thrilled to get them. Don't, don't think that I'm not. Because you gave me an opportunity to go through this subject again. So here we go again. I'm delighted. You should be afraid of that. Okay, let's call it good right there.